World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ora Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The green transition is going to lean hard on new parts of the periodic table, but no element is so prized at the moment as lithium for batteries. Our correspondent visits Africa's biggest lithium mine, finding how China is getting a particularly firm foothold. And Eleanor Otto built aeroplanes for Boeing until she was well into her 90s. Our obituaries editor pays tribute to the longest working Rosie the Riveter. But first... Prices are rising all over the place, but there's one country where that is, in the long view, good news. Japan. After decades of sluggish growth and a deflationary spiral, there are loads of promising economic signs. Foreign investors are piling in, wages are up, and a new generation of business leaders is coming of age, eager to add some dynamism to a business culture dominated by big industrial names like Toyota and Sony. Now, it's not all good news. Rising prices still bring some pain and knocks to demand. Recent quarterly GDP numbers were down by more than 2% year-on-year. And on Wednesday, the government cut its short-term predictions on capital and consumer spending. But Prime Minister Kishida Fumio seems clear about his mission. The economy, economy, economy. In Japan's parliament last month, he said he'd do everything he could for it, including stimulus measures to the tune of 17 trillion yen, $114 billion. He's right to try to fan these incipient flames. Opportunities like this have come and gone before. Japan's economy has been attracting a lot more interest this year than it normally does. Noah Snyder is our Tokyo bureau chief. There are signs that it's finally emerging from decades of economic lethargy. Uh, Investor interest is picking up. We've seen big names like Warren Buffett and Larry Fink coming through Tokyo. And in part, they're excited by signs of dynamism in the Japanese economy. Wages and prices rising faster than any time since the 1990s. And longer-term shifts, internal shifts, uh, changing corporate culture that seem to give a, a glimmer of hope for Japan Inc., well, before we get into all the reasons behind it, let's, let's uh, understand where Japan is and, and where it's been in recent decades. In the decades after the Second World War, Japan's economy grew rapidly and it emerged as one of, if not the biggest challengers to America's economic dominance globally by the end of the 1980s. Then 
the asset bubble went pop in Japan, and the country slid into what some economists called the lost decades. Though it remained a rich place, the growth rate slowed and, and the economy entered years, if not decades, of deflation and, and low inflation. And really the fundamental problem was one of dynamism. There were few new companies being formed, too many old companies hanging around like zombies for too long, and too much talent trapped within the same firms. So Japan's GDP per person, for example, slid from 81% of America's at the beginning of the 1990s to just 64% today. And in the future, major banks like Goldman Sachs, for example, predict that Japan is going to drop out of the world's top five economies by 2050 and maybe even out of the top 10 by 2075. But those predictions don't take into account what you suggest might be changing here. What's going on to, to shake things up? Well, I think there's two external shocks and two internal shifts that are changing the landscape a bit for the Japanese economy. And, and this is really a chance, not a, a guarantee that the trajectory could change. All right. So let's take those in turn. What are the external bits? The first and most important is prices. For decades, Japan has been trying to get inflation up. I know this sounds strange when much of the world is struggling to keep it down, but the Bank of Japan has been experimenting with unorthodox easy money policy for years in the hopes of getting the inflation rate above its target of, of 2%. And that's only really happened in the last 18 months, due largely to supply chain shocks and rising import prices. Now, that might not be the, the kind of inflation that the Bank of Japan wants, but it's had a really big effect on the psychology of price setting. Some 90% of goods monitored by the Bank of Japan are seeing their prices rise. And, and that's a big jump from even just a few years ago. So that's the first external part. What's the second? The second shock is geopolitical. America and China are at loggerheads. Countries are thinking more about supply chain resilience. So there's a, a shifting in supply chains and, and a search for new stable production bases. So Japan has a chance to benefit from this. For example, TSMC, a big Taiwanese semiconductor firm, is building a, a new fab down in, in the south of Japan. There's also a chance that firms looking to rebase elsewhere in Asia will turn to Japan's big automation companies to help them do so. And in this new geopolitical environment, one important difference is that America wants to see a strong Japanese economy. And this is a real difference from the 1980s when America and, and Japan, though they were security allies, were competing economically. So getting deflation, inflation under control and simply looking like a, a more stable bet, that's the external part. What about the internal part? So the internal part, I think, is, is a bit subtler, but certainly no less important. The first one has to do with how companies are run, corporate governance, really. And there were a set of reforms that began more than a decade ago that were pushing to get Japanese companies to pay more attention to corporate value, to return on equity, to the cost of capital, really to get them thinking more about taking risks for future growth. And those reforms have become entrenched over the past decade. And, and there are signs that they're entering a, a new phase as Japanese domestic investors, the Japanese government, and even the Tokyo Stock Exchange itself are adding to the pressure on companies to pick up their game. And the other piece is a change in, in who's running companies, who's creating companies, a, a real fundamental generational change. Well, what's going on there? So these are still green shoots, but the way that people, young people especially in Japan, think about jobs, think about their relationship to their companies, think about what 
is meaningful to them in life is really changing. For a long time, the Japanese dream, if it were, was to get a stable job at a big name company, a household name, and to stay there for life. And what's happened in, in recent years is that young Japanese are showing that they're happy to jump between jobs, between companies, and even the best and the brightest amongst them to join and, and start their own new companies. And so this is a, a kind of dynamism that's been missing from the Japanese economy. And the leaders of these new companies, they want to kind of shed the post-World War II culture of the old Japan Inc. They want to make a, a more dynamic, a less rigid corporate culture. They want to eliminate some of these age-based hierarchies and some of these gender-based hierarchies that have made corporate Japan so staid in recent years. So at the risk of mixing metaphors here, we've seen false dawns before with these kinds of green shoots in the Japanese economy, right? How can we be sure or, or should we be sure that it's not the same sort of thing this time? You're absolutely right, Jason. You know, the picture we've been painting is, is a hopeful one. It's a, it's a picture of the chance that these convergence of forces uh, presents for Japan. But there is also, of course, a chance that this does end up another of many false dawns for the Japanese economy. And, and the latest GDP figures are a sign of just how fragile Japan's recovery is at the macro level. Wages, though they've been growing faster than at any time since the 1990s, they're still not growing as fast as prices. Consumption is flat. The currency is weakening to the extent that Japan might, in dollar terms, slip from being the third largest economy in the world to the fourth this year. So there is a, a path here for Japan, Inc., but it sounds like a fairly narrow one. I mean, what, what should be done here to seize this opportunity? For starters, the Bank of Japan has to unwind some of these unorthodox monetary policies that might have outlived their usefulness, but do so without suffocating the nascent inflation that Japan has been really hoping for and, and hanging on to for so long. And Japanese companies have gotten better at corporate governance, but there's still a long way to go. And in this unstable world, Japan's corporate leaders are going to have to do a lot more than just preserve the status quo. And finally, I think there's a question of government policy. Kishida Fumio, Japan's prime minister, has promised recently to focus on economy, economy, economy. And he has, compared with his predecessors, talked a bit more about startups and, and the new economy. But his latest economic package, which was announced earlier this month, is heavy on the kind of one-off tax cuts and stimulus measures that seem designed to boost a politician's popularity rather than the country's long-term growth. As I've been talking with Japanese executives and politicians and policymakers about the Japanese economy in recent months, I do get the sense that they share the feeling that Japan stands at a, a significant juncture and that a chance like this may not come around again soon. Noah, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. episode of the Weekend Intelligence, writer Brooke Larmer travels to Dharamshala, the capital of the Tibetan diaspora, to tell the story of Tibet's spiritual leader. The Dalai Lama is 88 and showing signs of mortality. When he does eventually die, it looks increasingly that there will be a battle over his soul. In Buddhism, all living beings reincarnate, but only lamas, high-ranking monks who have achieved enlightenment, have the ability to control their reincarnation. But China says when the time comes, they will control the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama through Chinese laws. It seems almost inevitable that we will end up with two Dalai Lamas, one chosen by China, 
one selected by the leader of the Tibetan Buddhism. It's a bizarre situation of dueling reincarnations that, as Brooke explains, is not without precedent. It started with the death of the 10th Panchen Lama, the second highest Lama in the Dalai Lama's order, in 1989. The 10th Panchen Lama died of a sudden heart attack at 16 past 8 in the evening, January 29th, 1989. He died at his new residence in Shigatsu after all medical efforts failed. In 1995, the Dalai Lama identified the reincarnation of the Panchen Lama, the six-year-old son of yak herders in eastern Tibet. China was having none of it. Three days later, Chinese authorities kidnapped the boy making him the world's youngest political prisoner. He has not been seen or heard from since. Then, the Chinese replaced this child with their own six-year-old boy, anointing him the new Panchen Lama. To give this charade the veneer of legitimacy, they used a golden urn to confirm his selection. A 200-year-old vessel that Beijing insists must be used to select all high lamas. Conveniently, China possesses both existing urns. The Weekend Intelligence is only available to subscribers of Economist Podcast Plus. If you haven't signed up yet, we actually have a Black Friday sale at the moment. Until Monday, you can join us for half price, just $2 pounds or euros a month to enjoy tomorrow's episode and much more. Follow the link in the show notes to snap up the deal now. being transported to, to Beira. Driving through this small town on the outskirts of Harare, the capital. And there's a real rush on to get as much of this metal out of the ground as quickly as possible. Lithium is refined for use in batteries for electric vehicles and various electronics. It's also 
for African countries like Zimbabwe a huge opportunity for them to make the most out of what lies beneath their ground. And so does Africa and, and Zimbabwe in particular have a great deal of lithium reserves? Lithium is often associated with Latin America or Australia, but Africa will become an increasingly important source of lithium. A few years ago, it was essentially producing nothing in terms of global supply, about 0.1% in 2019. But by 2025, according to Reistad Energy, a Norwegian consultancy, it will be producing more than 10% of the global share. And Zimbabwe will probably account for about 5 to 6%, so roughly what Canada or Iraq supply to a global oil market. So what is it that's behind this huge pickup in lithium mining then? In a word, China. Roughly 90% of all the mines that will account for this big increase over the next few years will be at least partly owned by Chinese entities. And this Arcadia mine is actually owned by Huayu Cobalt, one of the biggest Chinese miners. But again, why the, the speed and the scale here? The, the need for lithium has been clear for as long as some push towards electric vehicles has been there. What's going on here so suddenly? That's right. And lithium is unlike cobalt. 70% or so of cobalt production globally happens in the DRC, whereas lithium can be found in many more places. But you've got to see this from the Chinese point of view. China has about 8% of global lithium reserves, but it refines 60 to 70% of the metal. And America and other Western countries are keen to loosen China's grip on this green supply chain. So China thinks, well, there might be fewer places for us to get lithium in future. For example, Australia, a huge lithium producer, is now looking again at Chinese investments in its mining sector. So already this year, the Australian government has blocked two proposals for firms involved in mining lithium and rare earths. And Australia is becoming closer to America. So the Chinese are thinking, if we can't get it from our own rocks and we can't get it from traditional sources, then why not Africa, where many of our miners have been operating for decades? But what are other countries thinking then as this is going on on China's part? Pretty much every Western country is keen to be involved in more African mining. So you have some smaller miners, whether Australian or American, looking for lithium in places like Ethiopia, Ghana, Namibia, Rwanda, relatively friendly countries to the West. But most of these projects are still in the developmental stage. And what's important to note about the Chinese is just how quickly they operate. And that's partly because, frankly, they are less likely to care about some of the environmental and other concerns than Western miners are. But it's also because they're actually snapping up projects that have been developed by others. So Arcadia was previously owned by an Australian company, Prospect Resources. And according to sources, they had been in conversation with Western officials who said, well, maybe we can get you some government-backed support. But it just took so long. And then Hawaii turned up in Zimbabwe and a deal was basically struck in a matter of months. So what is it that's stopping Western countries from moving at those kinds of speeds, though? Is it, is it just the environmental regulation side of things? It's part of it. But there's also unintended consequences from Western legislation. To pick one example, I'm sure listeners will have heard of the Inflation Reduction Act. Joe Biden's signature piece of legislation full of subsidies for clean energy, trying to drive what he calls a green jobs boom. It's having a big impact on the United States. 
but it's also having an effect many thousands of miles away. And that's because there are tax incentives as part of that act, which only apply if a certain percentage of the underlying mineral that goes into a battery plant or an EV come from either the United States itself or countries with which America has a free trade agreement. And what about what happens in the countries where there is this boom coming from the Chinese side? What are those same policymakers telling you about the, the, the benefits to Zimbabweans? For the Zimbabwean government, the lithium mining boom is a big deal, not just because it brings in lots of export revenues, but also because it offers the chance, in its view, to do what's called value addition. So rather than just exporting the raw ore, there is some basic processing of the ore going on at Arcadia. But there's a catch. According to the Zimbabweans I met in Goromonsi, while the mine has brought some development, there's a strong sense in which most of the value is not being captured at home. So when I was near the mine, I chatted to a community leader called Tadi Gwena, and he's seen monumental changes only in the past few years. Some of these have been good. Number one is that... Uh... Uh, for now, young people who are just uh, roaming around in townships, a lot of them have managed to get uh, employment. Although the working conditions at the mine are very harsh, and what they are getting is not uh, the worth, the real worth of, of the mineral. But he's also seen the consequences of what you get when you have a mining boom. Uh, we're seeing that uh, the this area is now is becoming densely populated. A lot of people are moving and migrating to this area. And also, uh, which is the most important thing, this uh, lithium mining has brought a big crisis. Like currently, we've got uh, uh, pollution, air pollution. And this is happening in a country where the government has a history of corruption and has not the greatest record, to say the least, when it comes to improving the lives of its people. Now, Western governments, Western firms hear stories like Taddy's and say, we can do mining better. We can have higher environmental and labor standards, and we can ensure that more value is kept in the African country itself. The thing is, while this may well be true, it's taking a long time to come to fruition. Meanwhile, the Chinese, whether big miners like Hawaii or smaller scale operators that you can see in several hotels in Harare, are moving quickly and they're getting the rocks, they're getting the metal out of the country. So ultimately, while the West is mostly talking about mining in Africa, the Chinese are the ones that are actually digging. John, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Elena Otto had a pretty punishing schedule in the working week. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. She'd get up at 4am, have a shower, drive over to Long Beach. Then she'd have her breakfast and read the newspaper. After that, at 6am sharp, she would go to the Boeing plant and she would spend the day firing rivets into the wing sections of C-17 aircraft. A lot of other people in the plant had the same regime, of course. The difference was that Eleanor was still doing it in her 90s. She liked to be kept busy. She didn't know what she would do if she was simply sitting at home. Every day she wanted to accomplish something, and she certainly did. 
In the 49 years she worked for McDonnell Douglas or Boeing, she fired rivets into 729 C-17s. Sometimes people would think, or she imagined they would think, what's that old bag doing here? But she didn't look like an old bag with her bright red hair and her bright nail polish. She could also wield a rivet gun as well as anybody and stay on her feet all day. If anyone came and complained to her, she would say, I've been using this rivet gun since before you were born, which was quite right. She'd actually been using one since 1942, when she was 22 years old and signed up to be one of the women who were being recruited into the war effort in America. Young women of America helping to keep them flying. Today, the aircraft factory is ready to employ Pearl Harbor widows. After Pearl Harbor, the men had gone away to war, and it was up to the women to carry on making munitions. She was very pleased to do this work, mostly because it brought in more money. She could earn 65 cents an hour. And since she was recently divorced and had a baby to look after, as well as her mother, it was obviously the good place to work. If she was a typist, she would only get about half as much. The only drawback to the job was the hours, but she and her friends would motivate themselves to get out of bed and get dressed at four in the morning by putting onto the wind-up phonograph a new song recorded by the four vagabonds with a ukulele, which was called Rosie the Riveter. All day long, whether rain or shine, she's a part of the production line. She's making history, working for victory, Rosie. Rosie the Riveter, and so it went on. And as a result of this, the women who were engaged on jobs like that, and especially the 300,000 women who'd become riveters, all became known collectively as Rosie the Riveter. Eleanor was probably the last one still left, and she was certainly the longest working. When they joined at the plant, there were still quite a few men there, because not all men had gone to war, some had medical exemptions, some were too old, and so on. It was fairly frosty at first. The men resented the women taking the jobs. They didn't want to be shown up as working too slowly. They didn't like the idea that they had to keep their shirts on and not smoke and not swear. But the women listened very carefully when they were given their instructions, and in the end they were working much more efficiently than the men were. Gradually, there was a warming of relations, and so much so in Eleanor's case, because she was very pretty with bright blue eyes and masses of dark hair, the men started to loiter near her, just watching her work, even though the bosses threatened them with demerits if they kept doing it. Some of them left notes in the phone booth she went to to call her mother every evening. She was enormously proud of being an aviation worker. She liked to say... I don't act in movies. I build planes. She loved to watch them take off and feel that every rivet she had fired into them had actually made the plane stronger. Some of the planes she built were bombers, the B-54, all through the war years, and then the B-19 afterwards. She still felt that everything she was doing was for a good cause and making America stronger. And also, when she became involved with the C-17 planes, these were cargo aircraft, and she always felt they were carrying goods or help to other countries, and therefore carrying out a good mission. 
There was also another great change which she was supposed to have helped with, and that was to encourage women to join the workforce. She had undoubtedly, with all her colleagues, helped the movement of women into untraditional jobs. She didn't realize this for some time, but there was a poster produced in 1943 that showed a young woman wearing the uniform of a munitions worker, that is, blue overalls and a bandana on her head, a woman who was flexing her arm and saying, we can do it. This became famous at Westinghouse. It was produced for that factory particularly. And then it disappeared. But in the 1980s, it was rediscovered and the feminist movement in America, which was then very strong, immediately seized on it. And Eleanor seized on it herself. She was delighted to see it because this poster became the representation, if you like, of Rosie the Riveter and all the other Riveters and workers. And she was extremely proud to think she was one of them. Even on her 100th birthday, she was still flexing her arm and shouting, we can do it, and we did it. In 2017, when she was a mere 98, she went on a ceremonial flight in one of the C-17s. She'd never been there before. And as they went heavenwards, she could reflect that she had always hoped there wouldn't be rivet guns and aircraft waiting for her in heaven, much as she liked to be busy, perhaps not quite that busy. But she still hoped that God would have plenty of things that she could be getting on with. She was as proud as a girl could be. There's something true about red, white and blue about Rosie. on Eleanor Otto, who's died aged 104. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin. And our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larnyuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Kadifa. And our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane, with extra production help this week from Emily Elias and Peter Granitz. We'll all see you back here tomorrow. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.